Hello, my name is Ed Frawley, and today we're going to talk about the theory of motivation in dog training. One of the most important concepts that every new pet owner must learn if they want to become an effective dog trainer is how to motivate their dog to want to follow commands and participate in the training process. When people first begin to train their dogs, many confuse rewarding their dog with motivating their dog. While these two concepts are very close in nature, there is a difference. The sooner a handler learns the subtleties of these differences, the sooner they become an effective dog trainer. Simply put, motivating a dog means creating an environment where the dog has a desire to perform an exercise. When handlers learn the art of motivation, they take their training one step further and they create an atmosphere where the dog really wants to learn. The dog interacts with the handler. They create an atmosphere where the dog is actively trying to figure out what it is the owner is trying to ask him to do. This podcast will discuss the different ways to motivate a dog during training. While there's a million ways to train a dog, there are only four ways to motivate a dog. The first is by using food as a reward. The second is using toys or prey items as a reward. The third is using praise from the handler as a reward. And the fourth method is using force or corrections to make the dog do what you want him to do. How you mix and match these four methods will vary according to your dog, the circumstances you're in, your dog's level of training, and your experience. The fact is, some of these methods will work with one dog and not another. In fact, some methods will work for a dog in one circumstance, but not another. The differences between a good trainer and a great trainer is that great trainers know how and when to mix and match all four methods of motivation. Which method you use will vary according to your dog's temperament, your dog's genetic drive, your relationship or your bond with your dog, the distractions your dog is facing at any point in time, your experience and your skill at handling and training dogs, and finally, what stage of training you're in with your dog at this point in time. I would like to begin by talking about food, using food as a motivator. Using food is as old as the domestic dog. Most dogs, not all, like food treats. New dog owners quickly learn that using food works well to reward a dog for doing something they ask him to do. In its simplest form, it's easy to learn how to give a food reward after the dog does what you ask. What's not easy to learn is how the presentation and timing of the food reward is used to build motivation and drive. This is a learned skill that's acquired through training and experience. When it's done properly, good trainers make it look simple. When it's done poorly, the food reward accomplishes little towards motivating the dog to want to participate in the training process. The key to training dogs with food is to have a hungry dog. Americans historically overfeed their pets and have fat dogs. So, if you're going to use food to train, 
Don't feed your dog before you take him out to train. Feed him at the end of the day. Also, keep your dog thin. You want to see a definition between the end of the dog's rib cage and the loin of the dog. The bottom line is, is a thin dog is a healthier dog that lives longer. So do your dog a favor, keep him thin, and that will keep him hungry, and that will give you the, the use of food as a motivator. New dog trainers are always going to be faced with the advice that they get from neighbors, old school dog trainers, or friends when they tell them, don't use food because you won't always have food with you when you need to ask your dog something to do. Or they say, why train with food when you're going to have to wean your dog off the food at some point in time anyway, so why even start it in the first place? Well, as with many old wives' tales, this is just flat hogwash. The fact is, if a dog has strong food drive, it's a mistake for a trainer to not to learn to train with food. Training is composed of a learning phase, a distraction phase, a correction phase, and a maintenance phase. Food can be used in the learning phase, it can be used as a distraction in the distraction phase, and it can be used in the maintenance phase throughout the life of the dog. So you'll use food forever. It's just the application of food that changes. As a dog gains experience in training, the application of his food reward is always going to change. The possibility of a food reward becomes the motivation for a dog to perform an exercise. When a dog is past the learning phase, the application or random rewards produce drive. Withholding a reward in this phase of training can result in frustration. And when it's done properly, frustration builds drive. In my opinion, the best application of food in training is in a combination with marker or clicker training. Now, understanding the applications to train with food is not a topic for this podcast. It's beyond the scope of what I'm trying to talk about today. I only want to explain what the options are that you have for motivating your dog and what things affect motivation. Now, let's talk about using toys or what we call prey items to motivate a dog. Dogs with prey drive are good candidates for training with toys and prey rewards. In its simplest form, prey drive is the drive to chase a ball, chase a stick, chase a rabbit, or chase a squirrel. Some dogs have a ton of prey drive, while others have little to none at all. Most dogs fall in between these two extremes. Prey drive is an inherited characteristic. It can be seen in puppies as young as six and a half to seven weeks of age, and owners can start to develop it or build prey drive as young as eight weeks of age. It should be noted that even though your dog may be born with prey drive, it can dissipate and go away if it's not developed. When a police officer looks for a new drug dog candidate, they look for a dog with intense prey drive. They want a dog that would rather play with a toy than eat or sleep. Canine trainers use this drive 
for a toy as a reward for a dog when it finds drugs. Now, it should be pointed out that some dogs with extreme prey drive may be better off to be started in training with food. Dogs with extreme prey drive can be so driven for a toy that they can't think clearly in the presence of a prey item. These dogs are rare, but they do exist, which is why I'm mentioning, mentioning that now. While most dogs don't have enough prey drive to be narcotics dogs, they do have enough genetic prey drive that a toy reward can be used to motivate them during their training. In addition, many times a dog's prey drive can be increased through drive building to make training with prey a very legitimate tool. Once again, the application of toys as motivators is beyond the scope of this podcast, but I did do a very good training DVD titled Building Drive and Focus, which teaches people how to use prey items to motivate their dogs during training. You can read about this on my website at Learberg.com. It's one of the better training DVDs I've done in the past 25 or 26 years. The third method of how to motivate your dog is by using praise from the handler. As surprising as it may seem, less than 1% of dogs will work strictly for praise from the handler. In 45 years of owning and training dogs, I've only known of one or two dogs that only need their handler's praise to be motivated in all phases of training. Now with this said, in my opinion, handler praise is a critical component of all dog training. So the other 99% of the dogs that are out there need a combination of handler praise with a food reward, a prey reward, or corrections. For praise from the handler to be most effective, the dog must have a solid relationship or a bond with his owner. A bond is built on trust and it takes time to establish. When there is no bond, the effectiveness of handler praise means little to nothing. Now, there are dogs that have crazy prey drive who will play with anyone that picks up a toy. These dogs are so crazy for a tennis ball, they don't need to have a bond to play. Everything they do relates to their reaching goal satisfaction, getting that prey item or a toy. Handler praise to these dogs means little to nothing. But with that said, these dogs all seem to lack something in their personality. When people send their dogs off to be trained by a professional handler, there is no bond between the handler and the dog. This means that the pro has taken handler praise out of his bag of tricks. In fact, some dogs may have prey drive to play with their owners, but their pack drive is such that they won't play with anyone else. This means the pro has lost two of the four tools to motivate his dog. This is why I never recommend sending a dog off to be trained by a professional trainer. Read the article that I wrote on my philosophy on dog training. The bottom line is, is that it takes time to build a bond. And time is not something that a professional trainer has much of. So if you insist on using professional trainers, the way to do it is to take your dog to the trainer, you go with the dog, and have the trainer teach you how to train the dog. 
Don't let the trainer train your dog for you. This seldom works, and it almost always has problems that come back to haunt you later on. The fourth method, and remember there are only four methods, to use to motivate a dog is to use force. When a dog has no food drive, no prey drive, will not work for the preys from the handler, the only option left is to train with force. This means the dog either does what you ask it to do or it gets a correction. This is sometimes called escape training or avoidance training. Fortunately, there are not a lot of dogs that fall into this category. Dogs that have no food reward, drive, no prey drive, and, and really won't work for preys. But these dogs do exist. The unfortunate thing is there are too many trainers who use too much force and in the process sacrifice the relationship they have with their dog. I call these trainers old school trainers or yank and crank trainers. How often have you seen a trainer, if you've been around dog training, put a prong collar on a dog and take him on a training field to teach him how to heal? The dog is not allowed to make one mistake. The first time the dog gets out of position, it gets a prong collar correction. Then, after a number of these corrections, the handler feels the dog is complying enough and he drops a tennis ball or a toy for the dog to, tra to play with. One friend who doesn't train like this likes to say the ball is not a reward in this case. It's more of an apology to the dog for stupid training. Unfortunately, many professional dog trainers and experienced dog trainers that train in the dog sports train like this. Don't get me wrong here. Corrections are an integral part of almost every training program. There are four phases to every training program. Every exercise that you're trying to train your dog to do has four phases. It has a learning phase, it has a distraction phase, it has a correction phase, and it has a maintenance phase. The million or so dog trainers out there that promote only 100% positive training without corrections lack experience. These purely positive trainers limit themselves to a very narrow group of dogs that their training methods will work on. When dogs have gone through the learning phase where they are taught the meaning of a command and they then refuse to perform that command, the trainer needs to ask himself several questions. The first is, does the dog really understand what I'm asking him to do? The second is, is the dog refusing the command because he's not motivated enough to follow the command? And the third question is, is the dog refusing the command because he's challenging the leadership of the handler? Dogs in this last category require a correction. How hard that correction is will be determined by a number of things. I wrote an article titled The Theory of Corrections in Dog Training. You may want to review this article or podcast. As a general rule, a correction needs to be firm enough that the next time the dog considers not following his leader's command, his pack leader's command, he remembers what happened to him the last time he refused that command. In reality, this is called 
motivating your dog to escape a correction. I want to talk about how allowing your dog to make mistakes is part of the motivation process. Many dog trainers, both beginners and those that have been training for years, are afraid to allow their dogs to make a mistake in training. They don't understand. The simple fact is that making mistakes is a part of the learning process. When a dog is properly motivated, simply withholding the goal satisfaction becomes motivation enough for the dog to rethink what he's doing and look for a different path to reach his reward. If the dog is actively trying to seek goal satisfaction, in most cases, there's nothing wrong with allowing the process to continue or simply telling the dog, no, no, not that, keep trying. You're not offering goal satisfaction here, but you are motivating him to continue to try and work for you. The point where you would either back up your training steps in the learning process or introduce a correction is when the dog simply blows you off and quits trying. At this stage of training, many people get stuck in what I call the luring trap. Luring a dog through an exercise or luring a dog into position by using food is a common method of training. This simply means we guide the dog into position by allowing it to follow food in our hand. There's nothing wrong in doing this in the first stages of teaching an exercise. The problem is, is that many people never stop luring their dogs. They become so obsessed with not allowing a dog to make a mistake that they continue to lure their dog through all exercises. At some point, it becomes counterproductive because the dog never learns to think for himself. These dogs, who have handlers that lure them all the time, are always looking to their handler to solve problems. So with the right dog and at the right point in training, there's nothing wrong with asking a dog to do something and then simply telling the dog, no, I'm not going to reward you for that. We're going to start from scratch and we're going to do it all over again. Once the dog understands how you operate and how you play the game, this becomes motivation for the dog to try harder. When you do this work, you will quickly find out that your dog has what I call his bag of tricks. These are things that he's done in the past that have produced a reward. During the training process, when you ask him to do a new exercise and he starts to go through his bag of tricks, he sits, he lays down, he barks, etc. This is his way of telling you that he's motivated, he wants to participate, he just doesn't understand what you're asking him to do. So the bottom line here is that this training produces a two-way communication between you and your dog. You just need to learn what it is your dog's trying to say when he interacts with you. Now we're going to talk about how a dog's temperament affects his motivation. A dog's temperament or his personality is shaped from his genetics and the socialization the dog has had up to a given point in time. Generally, dogs are graced with either good nerves or weak nerves, 
and a hard temperament or a soft temperament or something in between all of the above. Weak nerve dogs are dogs with what I say are thin nerves that are easily distracted by things they are not familiar with. In the worst case scenario, a fear biter is the extreme version of a weak nerve dog. These are dogs that are so nervous or so afraid that they quickly slip into fight or flight when faced with strangers or new things. While some dogs become fear biters because they have been mistreated, the vast majority of fear biters are the way they are because of the genes they got dealt from their parents. One would think that all weak nerve dogs would be difficult to motivate. The fact is, this is not always the case. One of our house dogs, Morgie the Corgi, has weak nerves. She would scat from a cat in a heartbeat. She spooks from a piece of paper if it moves too quickly on the floor. Yet, she has excellent prey drive and super, super food drive. You can see this with many dogs. I've seen it with Malinois and Border Collies, where the dogs have a great deal of prey drive, yet their nerves are so weak they spook at the drop of a hat, or they become aggressive with unfamiliar people. These kinds of dogs can be motivated in training with prey items or with food, but it needs to be in an environment that they're familiar with. In fact, short-nerved dogs are best trained through repetition and a repeated routine. It's within the familiarity of a routine that these dogs find comfort and security. When trainers realize this, they can often motivate these dogs to want to learn. Take the same dog out of its routine and to a different location, and this dog is going to be too nervous or too distracted to become motivated. But routines are the reason that a lot of weak nerve dogs do well in AKC obedience. It's also the way that a lot of short nerve dogs can go out and do well in Schutzen competition because people train in routines. The opposite, at the opposite end of the spectrum of a weak nerve dog is a dog with completely rock-solid nerves. Nothing bothers a solid nerve dog. They're self-confident. They live their lives trusting people in new places. Trying to motivate and train dogs with solid nerves requires a different approach. Assuming the dog has prey drive and food drive, these dogs need to be mentally challenged, or they get bored. If one would train a solid nerve dog in routines, they're going to lose their motivation and they will lose focus. So a solid nerve dog needs the opposite of a weak nerve dog. To motivate these solid nerve dogs, you need to break things up and change the pattern of training. You need to challenge them. You need to make them think. Don't let them try and anticipate what's next in training. You force them to listen to you and then reward the dog that rises to the challenge and works out the problem. These dogs will rise to the work and become motivated by the challenge of the handler bringing different changes to their training. Now, let's talk about hard dogs versus soft dogs. Every trainer 
should understand if his dog is a hard dog or a soft dog or somewhere in between. A hard dog recovers quickly from a correction. A very soft dog goes completely out of drive and does not recover quickly from a correction. When a soft dog is corrected with a normal correction, it acts like its life just came to an end. Some of them will tuck their tail, lay down on the ground, and act like, oh my God, what happened to me? With this said, both hard dogs and soft dogs can be put into drive. The difference is a soft dog will quickly come out of drive if he thinks he's going to get corrected or if he is overly corrected by his handler. The bond that you have with your dog is going to affect how you can motivate your dog. Dogs with a strong pack drive and a good bond with their owner are always easier to motivate. Some dogs, because of the way they were raised or because of their genetics, have a very strong pack drive. Now by this I mean they bond very tightly to their owners, and they're willing to accept leadership from a pack leader. If these dogs have a fair-minded handler, they feel very comfortable in the presence of their handler, and they are more easily motivated. Dominant dogs, on the other hand, don't have a strong pack drive. They will work for a handler, but only when it serves their interest and their needs. With this said, many dominant dogs are the way they are because the owners have not established pack structure with that dog. When these dogs either go through a pack structure leadership program and their owners reestablish pack leadership, the dogs can often become good working dogs that are able to be motivated in training. I did an article in an ebook on how to establish pack structure with an adult dog. You may want to refer to that. New dog trainers quickly learn that the less their dog is distracted, the easier it is to get him to play games. Conversely, the more distraction, the more difficult it is to get the dog to pay attention to you. This becomes pretty obvious when a dog will willingly play tug or chase a ball in your house or your backyard, but shows little or no interest in playing games in the presence of another dog or in new surroundings. Trainers can establish the optimum level of motivation in their dog by building drive in a local environment, your backyard. Once they establish that level, this then becomes the goal of drive building for that dog. The handler's job is to gradually increase distraction until the dog is working at the level that he will work in your backyard. They need to learn, new handlers need to learn to motivate their dogs to the level of drive it demonstrates in a distraction-free environment. That needs to be your goal. The biggest mistake that new trainers make is to increase distractions too quickly. One of the most important things that new trainers need to learn is how to pick a motivator that fits your dog's interest. Have you heard the saying that 
Some guys like blondes and some guys like brunettes. Well, some dogs like certain kind of food rewards more than others. Some dogs like certain toys more than others. It's the owner's responsibility to determine what trips his dogs trigger. I always shake my head when a trainer tells me that his dog just doesn't like a tennis ball. But he'll play with a tug. They want me to tell him what they need to do to make their dog ball crazy. My answer is, throw the damn ball away and buy tugs. If I'm going to train my dog with food, I will always ask the dog, what kind of food do you like the best? The way I do it is I ask somebody to hold my dog on a leash while I let the dog smell five or six or two or three kinds of food treats. Then I take these different treats and I put them on the ground in front of the dog. When all the treats are on the ground, and I'm sure that the dog has smelled each kind of treat, I ask my friend to release the dog. Most of the time, if the dog has a preference, he's going to go to that pile first. The best of all worlds is a dog that loves them all and starts at one end and eats them all. You may have to try this several times to figure out if your dog really likes one kind or another. This same test can be done with toys. Just have different prey items, show them to the dog, lay them all on the ground, release the dog, and most of the time, he's going to go to the toy that he likes to play with the most. You know, I tell people dog training isn't rocket science. It's just common sense. The problem is, is that it took me 45 years to get the common sense that I have right now, and I really like this way of figuring out what my dogs like and what they don't like. I've already mentioned earlier that the handler's experience affects motivation. Handler experience always affects how quickly dogs learn and benefit from drive building. Through experience, owners learn timing and presentation of rewards. This is so important in how the dog becomes motivated and participates in the process. Dogs need to be rewarded within one second of a behavior if the reward is expected to be effective. Working with marker training or clickers can extend this time period. I cover marker training in my DVD on basic dog obedience. If you really want to become a student of motivation in dog training, you should become a student of marker training. Let's take a minute here and talk about how a dog's drive affects his motivation. Many people confuse a hectic dog as a motivated dog. Motivation without control results in a hectic behavior. Think about this statement because it's very important. A perfect example of this is a dog that chases shadows in the presence of the handler on a training field during the middle of a training day. Motivation without control or focus is hectic behavior. Dogs with hectic behavior cannot think and they can't learn. Hectic dogs need to be taught impulse control. They need to be taught self-control. I will say that confusion can produce hectic behavior, especially when the dog has been trained with force. You can see this with people who have trained to force retrieve 
or those who have trained forced tracking or even a forced recall. With this said, a dog that is genetically hectic may have to have a level of force exerted to make the dog settle down and focus. Through focus, they learn that they need to be taught to channel their hectic drive into focus motivation. So, while we can motivate our dogs, we must also make sure our communication is understood. And we need to teach the dog self-control so that they control their drive if they want to reach drive satisfaction. Now, what is drive satisfaction? Drive satisfaction is the dog obtaining whatever it is that motivates him. He either gets his food reward, he gets his prey item, he gets to play with his prey item, he gets praise from the handler, and he avoids a correction. The goal of all motivational training is to teach a dog that when we put him in drive, when we motivate him, he must control his drive if he's to get drive satisfaction. When the light bulb goes off in the dog's head, and this is something that they understand, they understand the game that you're playing with him, you will see their self-confidence improve, and they will start to try and figure out what it is you're trying to teach him when you introduce him to a new exercise. I've already mentioned that what stage of training your dog is in affects your dog's motivation. By that I mean dogs need to learn that they're being trained. This means we need to teach them that we're trying to teach them something. Now this may sound redundant, but in fact it's not. When we start to work with a new dog, he doesn't know what we're trying to do. He doesn't know we're trying to communicate with him. But as he gains experience working with us, we show him that we can be fun to interact with. And it's in his best interest to learn what we're trying to communicate to him. When this is done properly, when we motivate the dog properly, the dog will begin to look at the process as a game. As time passes and the dog gains experience, this game becomes a form of relationship building. It becomes a way to take our relationship with our dog to a new level, one that most people never come close to getting to with their dogs. Now the last thing we're going to talk about today is probably one of the most important things and that is one of the keys to successful dog training is to know how long to train and to quit while the dog is still in drive. Doing this will leave the dog slightly frustrated and frustration builds motivation and drive. With this said, I tell people to train three to five times a day for one and a half to three minutes a time. This will be better, a hundred times better, than training for 15 to 20 minutes straight. When I hear people say that they train their dog 30 minutes every day, I know these people have dogs that don't like to be trained, they're not motivated in training, and they've had too much force used to get them to do what their handlers want them to do. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like to learn more about dog training, visit my website at Learberg.com. It's over 10,000 pages and the largest dog training website on the Internet. Our website has free ebooks, a list of over 300 training articles that I've written, and it has 120 different training DVDs that I've done since 1982. You're also welcome to join our web discussion board. It's free. At this time, our board has close to 11,000 registered members. It's one of the most active web discussion boards about dog training on the internet. It has over 130,000 posts in its archives. Thanks again for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, keep checking because I come out with new ones on a regular basis.